Well, good morning again. Welcome to Trinity. For those of you who are here with us in person, we're so glad to see you. For those with us online, we're glad that you're with us. As we spend some time praying for our student ministry team that is going on this mission trip, they are leaving later this afternoon and will be gone until, I think, Saturday. Is that right, Lisa? Yep. So be praying for them each day this week. That would be a fantastic way of supporting them and encouraging them in the Lord. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible. We're starting a new series today. It's kind of hard. How do you, where do you go after you do Revelation? That, you know, that's an existential crisis for a pastor. It's like you kind of hit the last thing, and so now what? You know, and so let's go and dig into Ecclesiastes. We're going to spend uh, this summer moving through this letter, uh, or excuse me, this book of the Bible. Uh, it's in your Old Testament, sort of middle to the front half. Leaning toward the front half, you'll find Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. We're going to read verses 1 uh, through 11 of that opening chapter, really kind of setting the stage for what this book of the Bible is going to be geared at and make us wrestle with. Some of us in here look at Ecclesiastes and wonder, how should we take this and apply this to our lives? And hopefully this summer we'll be encouraged in, in doing just that. So let's read Ecclesiastes Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already, it's been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray. God, as we consider this book of the Bible, as we consider the things that it makes us wrestle with, the uncomfortable tensions that are running throughout, we certainly pray that you'd be with us and, and help us to see that, that, that we can actually go about living well in a frustrating world. And so help us as we embark on this journey together through Ecclesiastes. God, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I love movies. They make observations on life and creatively reflect upon those observations through the telling of a story. And as is a constant current criticism of movies, there is nothing new under the sun. It's just a retelling of the same stories over and over again. These stories can involve space travel, superheroes, sinking ships, the life of a teenager hanging out in the mall, or a rat who loves to cook. But doesn't really matter because there's always a story 
behind the story that is subtly playing out. I love a particularly cheesy 1989 Tom Hanks movie. Before he got all serious and started winning Oscars, it's called The Burbs, and it's completely ridiculous. It's set in a typical cul-de-sac Midwestern town with run-of-the-mill typical neighbors living out their routines perfectly uh, in the whatevers of suburban life. In the story, new neighbors come along into their perfectly curated cul-de-sac and throw a wrench into the routine with all sorts of weird activity, launching this band of normal neighbors into a most ridiculous, cheesy adventure. At the end of the movie, Tom Hanks' character, who by this time was half blown up from a gas leak that exploded in their neighbor's house, laid out a reflection on the suburban life. He says, remember what you were saying about people in the burbs, people who mow their lawn for the 800th time and then snap. Well, that's us. It's not them referring to the weird neighbors. It's us. Ecclesiastes is a little like Tom Hanks' reflection on the suburban life. It makes observations about this life and comes to some very challenging conclusions. We may invest our energy and efforts into things that are otherwise meaningless, and then one day just snap at the absurdity of it all. Grow frustrated with the way that life unfolds. Try to mask or bury deeply the fact that life doesn't unfold as it should. It doesn't go as it should. There's some sort of angst underneath all the things that we can masquerade on the outside. In fact, we find that many times life feels very inverted, upside down. Ultimately, Ecclesiastes is telling us that this life in this world can be and will be frustrating. But our job as we move through this book of the Bible is to pull out the story behind the story so that we can reach our goal of living well in a frustrating world. And that's the goal, folks, as we explore Ecclesiastes, is that we learn from it so as to go about living well in a frustrating world. Our, approach, our, our aim is to make sense of Ecclesiastes. It, there's been a lot of ink spilt on how to go about making sense of Ecclesiastes. And so to start us off using these first 11 verses, let's, let's work through this together this morning on how to make sense of Ecclesiastes. So first we're going to talk about approaching Ecclesiastes. How do, what are we... What are we tackling here when we approach this book of the Bible? And then secondly, we got to find that it's here in the Bible, so we got to go about applying Ecclesiastes. There's something about Ecclesiastes that we need to apply to our lives. God's Word is for our good and His glory, and so let's seek uh, our, our efforts in applying Ecclesiastes. And then thirdly, understanding it, you know, approaching it correctly and applying it to our hearts into our lives, we can get to the place where we can appreciate, go about appreciating Ecclesiastes. And so, so that's what we're going to do this morning, and, and really it's kind of laying groundwork for the series as a whole. That's the hope. As we see here in these first 11 verses, 
really the, the foundations for what is going to be covered in the book as a whole. So let's go about it. Approaching Ecclesiastes. First of all, there's a, it's a very unique book of the Bible. It carries with it some unique structure. One of the things that's very unique about it is that it's kind of like an autobiography set in a narrative frame. What do I mean by that? Well, most of Ecclesiastes is a first-person discourse. But the very beginning of Ecclesiastes and the very end of Ecclesiastes is a third-person perspective. So it begins, the portion we just read, from a third-person perspective, launches into a long first-person narrative, and then ends the last six verses of the book with that third-person perspective. So that's a very unique thing. And it's understanding that helps us see the ways in which we can approach, apply, and appreciate Ecclesiastes. And as we get into it, we see right away some things that we need to make sense before we dig further. The first is, who is this preacher? Look again at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. First, there's a uniqueness in the title that this translation uses the word preacher. The word there for that is a word that is really from a verb that means to assemble or gather together. And it's why translations either go with preacher or teacher to convey it. This preacher has learned some things over the course of life and is ready to press them upon the hearts and minds and lives of his hearers. But who is this preacher? Well, from that opening verse, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, most likely, the, the most logical and likely person is Solomon, and that's for several reasons. In the Old Testament, the expression son of David is only ever used for biological sons, and so that limits the field, if you will, and, and Solomon is among that. But then, furthermore, Solomon was the only son who was king over all of Israel in Jerusalem. And then, thirdly, when we dig into actual Ecclesiastes, and the journey the preacher goes on in his experiences over the course of life, the things that were afforded to him that he could go on such a journey to figure out what on earth is going on in this world really only fit somebody like Solomon who had all of that at his disposal. So when we think of Ecclesiastes, it is right to think of the first-person narrative, that's chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter uh, yeah, chapter 12, verse 8, as Solomon speaking to us later in his life. Next thing we see as we're approaching Ecclesiastes is a very challenging catchphrase that we will find again and again. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He is great at parties. So, have him over. Interesting word, vanity, uh, this translation goes with. The word for vanity can mean two things, one of two sort of main ideas. The first is it can mean something fleeting, or secondly, it can mean something futile. Fleeting, the basic meaning for the word for vanity is breath or wind. And certainly that conveys the idea of something fleeting, that life is fleeting. It's a breath, and before you know it, it's over. 
It goes by so quickly, and the older you get, the faster it goes, and so on and so forth. That there's a, a, a wisp of life. But it can also carry with it a meaning of futile or empty. Hence, vain or vanity. Or maybe your translation has the word meaningless. It's trying to convey that aspect of the word, that, that there's something about life that is, is empty, it's meaningless. It doesn't deliver what it intend, its purpose to deliver. And really, both of those words, fleeting or futile, um, are, are appropriate for what we see the preacher taking us through. So, so for me, I, th- I think a very helpful word to use in, in light of both of those meanings is the word frustrating. The word frustrating. Uh, taking fleeting and futile together and, and, and what the preacher walks through, through Ecclesiastes, frustrating conveys both concepts. To look around and, and see things go by quickly in life and then feel like you hadn't accomplished what you had hoped to accomplish because life just keeps moving. A sense of struggle and regret as you look back over your days. There's a frustration under all of that. Or the efforts that you do make and they don't seem to generate the hopeful or expectant results that you would want in life. And, and so under that is this frustration that gnaws at us. The preacher, as he works through his experiences in life, is saying life is frustrating because life doesn't go as it should. And then when we think about that, Solomon in that first person narrative really certainly makes sense of this word. We know Solomon was the author of Proverbs, which he wrote younger in life. In in Proverbs, Solomon made observations and reflections on life, but did so from a very God-centered wisdom foundation. We read Proverbs, and we certainly take it overwhelmingly positive. This is good and wise and God-centered counsel and direction. But later in life, Solomon delivers this first-person narrative in Ecclesiastes. And Solomon is making observations and reflections on life, not from a God-centered wisdom foundation, but rather from a personal experience foundation, from his personal experience. And those two places create a great deal of tension, a God-centered wisdom and a personal experience with hearts and lives that can interpret things incorrectly, can certainly lead to very different outcomes. What explains this change in Solomon? What explains this change? How has his heart gone from resting in a God-centered foundation of wisdom to then relying on his own personal experience? Well, his heart was turned away from the Lord. In 1 Kings, which is the historical narrative around David and and then into Solomon's life, it tells us this in 1 Kings 11.4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned uh, turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God 
as was the heart of David, his father. And so what we find here is indeed a a sad outcome of Solomon's life. And Ecclesiastes is giving us a window into that personal experience, primary way of looking at life, and in, in many ways will be very helpful for us. Now, as we consider that, we need to also come to realization that Ecclesiastes carries with it some very tense things, some juxtaposition between positive statements and negative statements around the same kind of thing. And so how do we navigate through that? There are a variety of approaches. And, and I, I tried to like put them into um, sorry, easy-to-follow categories. The first approach is the pessimistic approach. It reads Ecclesiastes and says, this guy who had everything totally derailed. I guess we have a visual for that. Um, uh, totally derailed, sorry. Um, if this guy who had everything totally derailed, what sort of hope do we, who don't have everything, have? Some within this pessimistic approach think Ecclesiastes is filled with all sorts of editors and redactors trying to smooth out or cover up all the failings of someone who once followed God. Or this pessimistic approach sees basic guideline is get what you can because that's all there is. This approach sees Ecclesiastes merely as a warning, if you will. Second approach that is common in trying to make sense of Ecclesiastes is the optimistic approach. This guy who had everything had some very low moments in life, but rallied and had a revival, so we can hope for the same in our lives. That Ecclesiastes is indeed filled with positive and negative statements about life, but the positives ultimately went out. And oftentimes, the optimistic approach tries to wash out the frustrations of this life and not address them honestly and head on. And this approach of Ecclesiastes, this optimistic approach, sees it ultimately as a picture of a good life. And then there's a third approach, an approach I'll be taking, and that is the realistic approach. And that is, this guy had a truly human experience in this frustrating world and struggled with how to make sense of it. Ecclesiastes is filled with all sorts of contradictions of thought because there are two worldviews in tension with each other. Real quickly, a worldview, just very basically and simply, a worldview is how you look at life and live it out. And there is the tension of two of those at play in Ecclesiastes, a God-centered worldview and a man-centered worldview. And so the realistic approach to Ecclesiastes sees that tension, is okay with it, understands that that's probably the reality of many of our experiences, the tension between a God-centered and a man-centered worldview. And so this approach, this realistic approach to Ecclesiastes sees that the struggle is real. But the struggle between that tension is real. And as I said, I'm approaching this book of the Bible from that realistic approach. The tagline to our series is living well in a frustrating world. 
So it's acknowledging the fact that this world can be frustrating. Life can indeed be frustrating. But how do we live well in the midst of the frustration? So we're going to embrace the tension of Ecclesiastes. We're going to embrace the tension of the positive and negative outlooks of life. But we want to center that tension in a God-centered worldview where a sovereign God graciously rescues sinners through the sacrifice of His Son who lived the life that we could not live in this frustrating world, overcame the frustrations of this world, defeating our sin, death, and Satan, so that we could have life and life to the full in Him. So there is a way to live well in this frustrating world. And that way is going to be found with a God-centered worldview. So hopefully you and I, we will indeed see how we can live well in a frustrating world and even enjoy the good things in this life, even though they may be fleeting or they may be futile. So that's how we're approaching this together. So let's think, start thinking about how we're going to apply Ecclesiastes. Well, there is a key question that unlocks Ecclesiastes. It is the question of the book, and that is verse 3. That is verse 3. Verse 3 says, What does man gain by all that toil at which he toils under the sun? The question is essentially asking, can you really live well in such a frustrating world? Can you? And this question is the overriding question of the book. This is what the first person narrative is seeking to answer and will do so again and again. We cannot lose sight of this question if you are a highlighter, an underliner of your Bible, that verse you need to put a bracket around. That is the question hanging over Ecclesiastes. Can you live well in a frustrating world? We find the question repeated again in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5. Can you live well? What can you gain under the sun? And that's those two main ideas emerge and are very critical and key ideas as we go into Ecclesiastes and really help us understand how to go about applying it. The first word, gain, is a commercial term that means profit or surplus. It refers to what is the ultimate profit, the ultimate gain, the ultimate surplus, the ultimate good from living in a frustrating world. What's the point or the goal or the gain we should be striving for in a world that is frustrating, where we're let down, where things don't go as they should. The preacher goes about answering his question specifically in chapter 2 and then generally backing that up throughout his first-person narrative. Specifically, this is his answer in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The question from a man-centered worldview that the preacher is answering is that there was nothing to be gained. There was no ultimate profit. You see, the preacher is chasing after ultimate and is frustrated that the world cannot deliver it. The preacher is chasing after ultimate and is frustrated that the world cannot deliver it. 
And let me just tell you, the preacher had every possible thing or position available to him to go all in in this search. And he asked the world to deliver ultimate, and it couldn't do it. Later, the preacher will encourage us to enjoy our portion in this life. And that's going to be a good tension that we'll get to in a, in, in a future sermon, the tension between that which is ultimate and that which is good. And the preacher is saying, enjoy the portion, the good that you get, because this is as good as it gets. Even though his ultimate search is that for which is ultimate. And then we get this phrase, under the sun, in verse 3. He's searching for it under the sun, and that is critical to see and understand. It is a phrase that conveys a human perspective on life, that there's no reliance on a divine perspective. This is where the tension of a God-centered worldview and a man-centered worldview meet. The phrase under the sun occurs 29 times through Ecclesiastes, 29 It it occurs often with verbs for to do, and it focuses on how we live under the sun. It also occurs with verbs to see, which focuses on how we think under the sun. The preacher's worldview is tied to the limitations of humanity's look out over the horizon. And there's no room for God in how he lives and how he thinks. Therefore, he is frustrated. This week, I, I know that I've, I've, I've been just in awe and wonder of all the images coming in from the James Webb Space Telescope. Hopefully, you've been able to see those over the course of the week as they've shared more. And they've Some of the ones that are breathtaking are the ones where they compare it to Hubble, the images from Hubble, which was breathtaking for decades. They were amazing. And now they look like like just little sketches of nothing compared to what has come in from these James Webb uh, Space Telescope images. But if you and I were to go out and look up at the sky at night, we see mostly darkness and blackness. Our human eyes, we look up, all it sees is dark. And if we were able to actually look up to the same patch of dark sky that some of these images from the James Webb Space uh, Telescope are, are delivering to us, we would be overwhelmed by the difference. Black, faint stars to these images that are bursting with colors and shapes and amazing wonders. Tension of Ecclesiastes is that we live life staring at a dark sky with a human eye, never once wanting to account for what God's perspective might be. And God's perspective is going to be always bursting with amazing colors and pictures and vividness of His grace and His mercy for us. As I've looked at those images, Psalm 8 has come to mind again and again. What is man that you are mindful of him? We see the overwhelming images of space. And God is over it all and yet cares so intimately about us. 
Why would we want to live life not accounting for a God who is so awe-inspiring and wonderful and yet so mindful of us? God is mindful of us. The Bible unfolds that out and culminates in the person and work of Christ. Why would we live our lives not mindful of him? So part of our applying Ecclesiastes is to confront our own wayward hearts that don't want to live mindful of a God who is awesome and wonderful and mighty and yet gracious and draws near to us. And that really leads us into appreciating Ecclesiastes, appreciating it, appreciating what this does for us. Because Ecclesiastes first, Ecclesiastes helps us be honest, that we don't have to sugarcoat life, that yes, life is frustrating, that there's a tremendous amount of freedom to be able to say that. Now, I'm not asking you to live in a woe is me Life is frustrating. My life is frustrating always that we would just be sour all the time. I'm, I'm asking us to say, I can look at life and be honest and say, yeah, it is filled with some frustrations. In fact, the preacher go, or we get this uh, description of the, essentially the kind of a table of contents, if you will, of the rest of the book in verses 4 through 11, a poem of frustration. Let's review that again real quick. Verse 4 through 11. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Nothing in life works as it should. It seems like everything falls short of expectations. In fact, creation is trapped under this futility. Even the New Testament understands that and says creation is crying out to be rescued from its futility. And humanity itself is sunk under the weariness of it all. You can't Make sense of life sometimes, and it's just a wearisome burden. And then history says it's frustrating. As the preacher says, there's no hope to change it. As verse 9 says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes helps us be honest. We don't have to hide this reality of life or hide from this reality of life. We know that life is going to be full of frustrations. Your car breaks down in the most inconvenient point of your life, right? Either of the day or of your finances. It doesn't wait till everything is right and good and easy to break down. It breaks down in the most frustrating moment of your life. And it's raining sideways because it's extra windy that morning. That's when it breaks down. 
We laugh, but you know what I'm getting at. Life is filled with the things that just remind us again and again that's frustrating. So that means we don't have to go chasing after distractions from those frustrations because the preacher will tell us even that is vanity. Even that is fleeting. Even that is futile. Trying to distract your heart from the frustrations of life is its own frustration. It's good. Helps us be honest. There's tremendous freedom and some self-awareness that this is indeed a frustrating world. But Ecclesiastes also helps us be hopeful. Helps us be hopeful. That is, Friends, you don't have to live your life with an under-the-sun perspective. It doesn't have to be that way. God in His grace and His mercy has provided a way for you to look at life and live it out from above the sun. His grace and His mercy, wrapped up in the person and work of Christ, lifts your, for your, your view above the horizon. You're not trapped under that frustrating cycle of mowing your yard 800 times, though none of you have probably mowed your yard for weeks, and it's probably just burnt except for the weeds that are growing. I don't understand that. That also, too, is a frustration. Before you snap, (laughs) look above the sun. Look above the sun. God in His grace and His mercy has made a way. And the rawness of the preacher's observations and the emptiness of his reflections that we will consider, we are given a real picture of the ultimate destination of a man-centered worldview. That's good for us because the antidote to under-the-sun living is a found, it's found in above-the-sun And the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will be, the God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he does not change. And it leads us to experience a wonderful irony as we go through Ecclesiastes. Living above the sun brings sustaining joy to how we live and think while under the sun. So much so that we actually can enjoy this life, even though it is frustrating. That we can actually go about living well in a world that is frustrating because our ultimate view of this frustrating world is from above the sun. We can enjoy this life when we make above the sun our worldview. Life in this world is filled with frustrations, but those frustrations do not have to determine how you live. Living well in a frustrating world is found when our view goes above the sun, where the grace and mercy of our God lead us to see it and experience it in our day-to-day lives. I hope we can explore that together this summer, to God's glory and to our good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that even in the parts that are uncomfortable, the tensions that it creates, even within us, or in our understanding, that you would be gracious to us and help us to grasp your heart for us, that you, God, are mindful of us. We could see a galaxy of galaxies and be in awe and wonder of what we behold, 
And yet greater than that is you, sovereign and gracious, mindful of us, rescuing us from the the frustrating trap of our sin, restoring us right to you, and one day restoring it all so that we may know you in glory. God, we would pray that you would lift up our view, lift up our perspective from under the sun to above it to see from your vantage point. God, by your grace and your mercy, through the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, may we come to see that we can indeed live well in a frustrating world. Help us in that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.